you, Peter. Good morning, everyone. My name's Glenn. If this is your first time, I'm just going to shove this forward a bit because I'm going to make it central just to get my OCD happy. There we go. <laughs> my name's Glenn, and I'm one of the pastors here at Willow Park. And if this is your first time here, we're so, so happy that you chose this Sunday of all Sundays. It's going to look very different when we come back in the fall, a little bit more on that. Uh, we are going to turn to the, uh, this amazing passage of Scripture in just a second. Before that, I've got a couple of kind of uh, pastor of the house type things to let you know about. The first one is uh, today is the final Sunday for Nicole Messenbrink uh, being on staff. And um, I'm going to give you the heads up in, to come up in just a minute. Nicole, she's pouring somebody a coffee. That just says everything about our Nicole. Um, it's time for the Messenbrinks. They really feel that, uh, that the Lord is calling them to other adventures. And we had a good chat about this a couple of weeks ago. And it's lovely to hear how uh, Nicole really does feel very led to this next part. And any of you know the Messenbrinks, the last few months has been, uh, has been quite the tumultuous time. I don't know, exciting time. Depends on how you want to do it, uh, how you want to say it. But there's certainly a lot of change in their family and they're feeling, uh, they're still kind of walking out what all the ins and outs are of that. But what they do know is that they feel like the Lord's hand is on this. And we want to celebrate uh, the Messenbrinks. And Nicole is, is here. Uh, we want to pray for Nicole. Before we do that, though, I do want to acknowledge that, uh, that Nicole has done an amazing job over the last few years. Especially, I think it's over three years now, Nicole. Is that about, have I got that about right? Um, I think when, uh, when I think of what Nicole's kind of uh, unfair advantage in life is, if you want to put it that way, uh, is that she just loves making people feel at home. And uh, I think of like those of you who were, did our church on lawn. Do you remember that? It seems so long ago, doesn't it? Like church on lawn. How many of you came to church on lawn? Okay, that whole setup, I remember coming on a Sunday morning, not knowing what it was going to be like, expecting it was just going to be a few chairs, but Nicole and her family had come early, they'd hung planters up, they'd got things strung up, it just, there was chalk on the floor, and I just thought that really speaks to one of Nicole's gifts, which is that gift of hospitality, where we really want people to feel expected when they come to the South, and also accepted, and uh, and, and Nicole, you've done a brilliant job at that. She's very, very committed, very dedicated, always on time, always there early, last to leave, really, truly faithful servant of the house. And so I want to give Nicole, I know she's hating every second of this, which makes it even more pleasurable. Um, but Nicole, why don't you come up? Let's give Nicole a big round of applause while she does so. We've got some uh, flowers Jenny has. Thank you. And a gift. Come on, guys, we can be louder than that. Let's really make it awkward. <laughs> Come on up, Nicole. We're online as well, just to make it even better. There's some beautiful flowers. I picked those myself this morning. <clears throat> and this is an empty card-ish. There is actually a card to go in it. And so if you would like to write something to Nicole, or maybe you want to write something on a piece of paper and put it inside before you leave today, we'll make it available, I guess, somewhere at the back. Jenny, we'll, around there, just before you go and get the free stuff, go and uh, sign the card. And so um, we will put that in there, but there's a gift in there for you as well. So why don't we pray for Nicole and bless her and her family on behalf of, of pray for her and for her family and anoint her for this next step 
And, uh, and I know the ladies as well have been tremendously blessed with the ladies group. I know quite a few of them are here. And uh, they're going to say their own special goodbye. It's not goodbye. It's, you know what I'm talking about. It's just next steps. Lots of next steps going on right now. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for the faithful service that Nicole and her family have brought to this house. We're so grateful, Lord, for the last few years where um, you have just shone in Nicole, that your gifting, your calling, Lord, your voice, her attention to what you have to say to her. Lord, we just want to honor that. And God, as she steps forward, Lord, you have said, just like to Abraham, go, even though it's not exactly clear what those next steps are. Lord, we just want to stand with her and Ethan, Lord, as they continue to listen to your voice. Lord, we pray for an anointing. We pray, Lord, for deep blessing. That, Lord, as this church family and all of those listening and watching online, Lord, we pray blessing upon this family. That, God, this next chapter will be rich. That, Lord, there will be a depth of intimacy, Lord, they've never experienced before. That, God, they would sense your blessing and your guidance in a profound way. So, God, we pray now in the name of Jesus, just as we have this kind of final time uh, in this place and also celebrating Nicole, Lord, I pray that she would feel loved. She will feel accepted and expected in every possible way. Lord, we ask all these things in your name, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Amen. God bless you, Nicole. Let's give her another big round of applause. Hallelujah. Okay, I didn't say hello to everybody joining us online. I know that we still have a lot of South people, so welcome. Thank you for doing that. And as uh, Jenny said earlier on, it's 10.30 from next week, which brings me to the next kind of important announcement. Uh, we, this week, are embarking on uh, tearing, not literally, not the walls, but tearing this place down, turning it back into a gym. Uh, the school districts, as many of you know, are turning this building back into a K-1 school, and then in a year's time, it'll be K-2. Um, and they have been very, very accommodating and very helpful in how we can then move back in the fall. Now, for those of you who have ever attended church in a gym, Push that out of your mind. That's not what it's going to be like. We are going to be totally committed to being as creative and filled with excellence as we possibly can. That when you come through those doors, um, that you will go, wow, this, this, is, this is great. It's not going to be green. It's not going to feel like we're in a bit of a cardboard box. One of the things that for those of you who are more musical will know that when you sing, it sounds like you're singing into a pillow because of all the soundproofing. Uh, we're going to have really great soundproofing. We're going to be able to hear one another sing. And, but it's going to look and feel different. God has been faithful to us over the last 20 years. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. But we want to celebrate that this has been a tremendous gift from the city to this church since 2003, almost 20 years. And yes, it is going to look different. And it's going to feel different. But when you look at the state of the world right now, really, we're worried about the fact that it's not going to feel like a church. In the grand scheme of things, that is the ultimate first world problem. Uh, I want to encourage you that this church will be as on mission, in the mission, in the fall, as we have been over the last 20 years. God has not finished with his proclamation of the gospel in this place. And for those of you who come from further afield, I know that some of you come from the kind of the outer boundaries, like Black Mountain, 
It's just such a long way. West Kelowna, I know that I can see some of you can come even further than that. Glenmore, and even as far as Kettle Valley, then we, we have heard you. We know that you want to continue to meet together, and we are committed to doing that. This is not going to be a bait and switch. We're not going to go, okay, we're going to be at 33 for a few weeks, and oh, surprise, we're actually going to stay there. That is not, outside of a clear word from the Lord. Uh, all we've heard is God's word saying, stay. Every other door has remained shut. Everyone. And I've started gently pushing doors, increased to a shove, increased to a kick, increased to one of those on the cop movies where they run and barge you with their shoulder. Every one of those, think Paul Bart, mall cop, as he bounces off something, falls flat on his face. That's how it's felt for me over the last year. I've tried everything. And the Lord all the time has gone, no, we're not finished here. So there's going to be lots for us to do as a church. If you want to come and help this week, uh, Monday, Tuesday in the day, you are welcome. If you like swinging a hammer or if you just like organizing stuff, all the staff are coming in. We're going to be clearing this place and out, hopefully, Lord willing, by the end of this week. There's a lot to do. But please pray for us. We are excited about this next chapter. It is literally a page flip. That is it. Just in a book. It's not a page done, book finished. It's a page flip. Let's see what this chapter has to bring. I'm actually really excited. Uh, I really am. And I'm not even spinning it. And I'm good at spinning stuff. I, genuinely, I'm excited about what the Lord is going to do in this, in this church. So um, thank you for those of you praying. As Jenny said, thank you for volunteering. Thank you for giving. Please continue to do so. Uh, and let's see what the Lord has for us in the fall. Amen? Amen. Great. All right. We, uh, we read some, uh, some, well, Peter did a great job of reading some a beautiful, amazing passage in, in the Bible from the Old Testament. We're going to turn to that in just a minute. Uh, in fact, as I was studying this this week, um, I was just so thankful the Lord had led me to this passage because he'd led me to this passage before some of the events that we've experienced over the last couple of weeks. Um, two years today was our first Sunday lockdown. March 6th, it was this kind of week. Um, I can't believe it was only two years ago. It seems like much, much longer. There are people who've been watching faithfully online every week that I haven't seen in a couple of years. Uh, we've had emails, we've had connections. You've got friends, you've got family that you haven't seen in a couple of years. So much can change. So much can change. And then we started hearing, and, and I want to let you know, this first part of my message might feel a little heavy. It might feel, it might feel uh, not particularly uplifting. It might be really sobering. Stay with me. Stay with me. Because we live in a sobering, heavy, non-uplifting world right now. And I've said many times in this pulpit, Spurgeon used to say that he would preach with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. And I'm very committed to cultural exegesis as well as biblical exegesis. The cultural exegesis we live in today is thick. It's heavy. It's hard. A couple of weeks ago, we were hearing statements like, I can't believe this is happening as we were looking at the possibility of Russia invading Ukraine. In fact, direct quotes as we just get through the scripture. Is this going to... You can put that on the black screen. Thanks, Tim. They won't invade. That's what diplomats were saying. That's what leaders were saying. That's what experts were saying. They will not invade. It makes no sense 
at all. In fact, just before this, we were readying ourselves for a post-pandemic party, literally. Sociologists and uh, economists were saying that we are going to move into an economic thriving time like never seen before. The last time likely would be post-World War Depression era. Their people were going to start partying like it was 1999 again. Although I don't actually remember a big party in 1999. And those of you who've got no clue what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Those of you who do, place your hands up in the air and wave them like you just don't care. Let's party like 1999. Love that song. Showing my age. But instead of a post-pandemic party, what we're actually facing is we're facing the real prospect of something that we experienced or I didn't experience, but many experienced in 1914 and 1939. Words like World War III that haven't really been uttered since the early 80s. And I do remember that time, as many of you do, when there was a real nuclear threat. I remember having classes of what happens if there was a nuclear war. That is what we're facing now. There's a real possibility, and again, this is not Glenn speaking, this is what you read in good media, that the real possibility is that the most significant threat is now no longer climate change, the significant threat is actually nuclear war. This is potentially more significant than any other war raged in the last 70 years. No matter how much you say, well, there's always been wars, and that is true, and and there's horrendous wars happening outside of Ukraine, we need to acknowledge that. But the significance of this war is deep, potentially far deeper than anything the world's experienced in 70 years. So how did we get here? I want to recommend to you a podcaster and a writer by the name of Dr. Mark Gailotti. He's actually... English, he is, quote, one of the most informed and provocative voices on modern Russia. This guy is not sat in his basement blogging his own thoughts. Listen to some of his resume. I'm only saying this because some of the things that I want to share with you, when I started reading and listening to this guy, I couldn't wrap my head around what had been happening over the last 30 years that our media has not actually reported on, as far as I could tell. So this is some of his resume. If you can find him actually on Wikipedia, it's way, way longer. He's a London-based lecturer and writer on on transnational crime and Russian security affairs and director of the consultancy Mayak Intelligence. He's an honorary professor of the UCL School of Slovakic and Eastern um, European Studies. He's a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. And he's an associate fellow in the Euro-Atlantic Geopolitics at the Council on geostrategy. He knows what he's talking about, is basically what this resume tells me. In 1989, this is, this is kind of garnered from a lot of reading I have done over the last couple of weeks. In 1989, and many of you are aware of this, communism started to fall, and it led to the most chaotic period that Russia's potentially experienced, certainly in the 90s, that Russia opened up full force to capitalism and liberal democracy. It was encouraged and it was enjoyed. All at the same time, there was a kind of a corruption and disharmony and underlying issues that were bubbling at the time in Russia as this was happening, as they were seeing Western forces coming into their beloved Russia. Many top-level Russian nobility looked on in disgust as Western culture grew into their beloved Russia. We always look at world history and geography and society through our very, very slanted liberal democratic slash Western 
viewpoint. We think everybody thinks like us. Because that's what we think, therefore, everyone in the world thinks like us. It's very hard for us in the West to understand how a Russian thinks. Because their whole worldview is totally different. So what we would see as a good thing going into Russia, they would see, certainly the upper echelon of their leadership, they would see it as something of horrendous danger. Interestingly, Dr. Mark says, Putin has always been very, very risk-adverse until two weeks ago. Diplomats and world leaders have openly communicated that Putin has changed. Barely been seen in the last two years, he's been isolated in COVID, and he has emerged what seems to be, diplomats and world leaders would say, a different man. And you'll understand why I'm going into such lecture-like um, information in just a minute, so stay, stay with me. His inner circle of trusted advisors, the so-called so strongmen, uh, the Security Council, led by Nikolai Patrashev, who's known as the Hawk's Hawk, Dr. Mark actually refers him to as the most dangerous man in Russia right now. This man is a conspiracy theorist to the point of it actually being quite amazing. He believes totally that Western powers are seeking to destroy Russia. He's even been known to quote psychics. Did you know that when Russia was opening up in the 90s, there was this prevalent force of psychic that was coming out in all the media and the Russians and even the Orthodox Church in Russia lent into some of these messages. This man, Patrashev, has actually been known to quote psychics who believe they can listen into the dreams of other world leaders. He's quoted them word for word. Some of the things that he believes and now this Security Council and potentially what Putin believes are things like this, that they believe the UK revolution in 2014, the so-called revolution of dignity, was engineered by the CIA. The West are committed to not only destroying the West, uh, Russia, but also humiliating it. That domestic opposition within Russia is being led by foreign leadership, and the MI6 in England is continually undermining the authority of Russia. After putting his nuclear arsenal on high alert, Putin said, quote, why do we need a world if Russia is not in it? Think about that. What used to be a simmering nationalism is now a full-blown, overflowing lava pot of hatred towards the West. Many believe led by, quote, the most dangerous man in Russia, Nikolai Patrashev. This man, Dr. Marx says, makes Putin look like a dove in comparison to the hatred that he has towards the West. And to make matters worse, he's also head of the Russian Volleyball Federation. We live in an unrecognizable world, even from two weeks ago. That's why I'm sharing all this. We live in a very blinkered world in the West. We really don't have any idea of what is bubbling spiritually in the lives and the hearts and the minds of those in this world. What God has done in the last two years has reminded us that we are completely out of control of a world that we think we have total control over. We are no, more, no less in control now than we were two weeks ago. We're no more in control now than we were in two years ago. It's just that now we've been reminded, actually, we don't have any control at all. To quote Raphael Baer from the, uh, the Guardian in England, the age of levity is over. These are just some images from Russia, uh, sorry, from Ukraine right now. 
the age of levity is over. If you Google that and look for that article from The Guardian, it's a fascinating article to read. So two things to observe, first of all, from a spiritual point of view. And I would be remiss in not acknowledging where our world is at at the moment. I'm not standing here making any recommendation as to how the world should respond. What I, my job is, as, as a pastor in this church, as one of the teaching pastors, is to communicate what is the heart of Jesus in the middle of this, and how should we, as a Christian church, respond. I think the first thing that we need to acknowledge is this world changes quickly. And so we cannot be settled. We cannot teach our children that no matter how hard you work, you can control your world. They can't. We can't. Secondly, and this is the point that I was trying to make as we were going through some of the history of what's been going on over the last 30 years in Russia, while we think because they've got McDonald's and the internet now, all is well, that actually there are powers that fight, there are principalities at war, that there are people who are against everything to do with the kingdom of Jesus, that we do not fight against flesh and blood. That regardless of the outcome of what is going to happen over the next little while, regardless of the outcome, we do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities and powers and strongholds and thoughts. And that positions us as Christians in a very, very powerful place. Because we, more than anybody, are equipped to be able to fight in a way that is most effective. Again, making no comment about what is going on right now. You see, we can come up with all sorts of different ideas as to how the world should respond. Should we have a no-fly zone? Should we do this? Should we do that? Should we do that? And that's great stuff to talk about. But ultimately, where is real-world life change going to happen? It's in the hearts and the minds of the spirits of those, some of whom are listening to psychics for direction and then creating events that potentially will change our history forever. Really interesting how our culture has responded to this. First of all, there's an abject hatred for Russians. That's the Jesus way. Actually, no, it's not. Don't quote me. Hatred for Russia. It was fascinating to me that the so-called progressive, liberal, let's accept everybody, let's be really loving, are the first often to jump into swearing and being very happy when they see Russians being blown up. It's fascinating. Because you're dealing with the heart of mankind, not just political viewpoints. The NPR, the press, uh, released a tweet this week that encouraged people in the West to look after themselves in the midst of this. That the, you need to, quote, self-care and make sure that you look after yourself and your anxiety. It erupted on Twitter. That really, you are concerned about your self-care and mental anxiety in the midst of what's going on. But our culture's viewpoint is so individualistic that our first response is, how can I look after myself because this is too overwhelming? And then we look at images like that and we're brought back down to earth. What is Jesus saying in the midst of all this? The Huffington Post said, again, protect your mental health, please. Perhaps... The worst thing that I heard was the viewpoint of somebody on TV from America who was expressing anguish because their Italian trip had been disrupted because of COVID and Ukraine. It's fascinating what our world does. So how do we respond as Christians? How do we respond? What is the Jesus 
response. I want to acknowledge that this is overwhelming. I want to acknowledge that it is a point where it creates anguish. I found this sermon as I was studying and reading and listening to podcasts very, very upsetting. I don't often sit there and weep. I sat there and wept. What is Jesus saying in the midst of a world where the unthinkable is suddenly becoming thinkable, to quote Mark Sayers? What we thought wasn't possible two weeks ago is now possible. Well, we can withdraw, put our fingers in the ears and go, la, 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 and pretend it's not happening. We can withdraw and become kind of that monastic lifestyle and just press on with Christianity and pretend that this isn't happening. And you can, you, you can not just look at Ukraine, but all the different wars and pandemics and everything else that's been going on in the world. We can, you know, we can protest, not going to say anything against that. We can hate. I am saying something against that. We have all these different responses. But in the darkest of times, what is it that God is asking us as a church to do? And what is God asking us as individuals to do? What is God asking us to teach our children in the midst of this? Because they will look back at this 20, 30 years time and say, I lived through that. What I know is this. In the darkest of times, God shows himself up in unpredictable and incredible ways. He shows up. I remember in 1989 and the early 90s of the so-called fall of communism. I remember that. I remember the shock of it. God can move in ways that is indescribable and unpredictable. But also God sends a profound reminder to his people of how much they are loved and how much he loves and how much he is in control. And on the back of that, we look at this scripture. It says, and the three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time. That's significant because at this time in David's history, these Philistines had invaded and he was now on uh, the run in the cave of Adullam. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephraim, David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was that Bethlehem. Just some things that are important and tie in to where we are culturally. Harvest time. Why is that significant? Because it means now the Philistines were not only in control of what really is one of the most important times of the year where they were bringing food in. So not only are they potentially starving now, but they're also looking at starving in the future, even if there is a way out of this. That David had just become king and he's now facing invasion from the Philistines and he's hiding literally in a dark place in a cave and also figuratively in a dark place in his heart. The Philistines were a few miles away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was everything that represented the presence and the power and the sovereignty of God. And David flees into a cave. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Please know that David is longing for something far more than a drink of water. These were well-experienced, hardened military uh, men, they would not camp out where there is no source of water. It makes no sense because the first thing that is going to weaken your men is lack of water. And we know from other accounts that the cave of Dullam was a popular place to go. It's not about the water. What we do know, though, when you drink water, is not all water is the same. David is longing for water from a particular place in Bethlehem, and that is so, so significant. 
Now, a few weeks ago, I shared about, and I still have people who kind of uh, pull back in revulsion when I remind them of my illustration about water and toilets and everything else. I'm not going to do that line. I feel like this sermon's been heavy enough as it is. But what I will say is, how many of you have ever found yourself in a, uh, like a 7-Eleven or somewhere like that, and you're drinking water, and you're just thirsty, and you look at all these dozens of different types of water, and you stand there and you study going, yeah, I'm not going to have that one, because that looks cheap. That looks like that's come from uh, Costco. I'm not going to have that. Evian, well, that's expensive, but that's the best water. And then, honestly, really, what difference does it make? It's not going to kill you. Get it in your body. Drink it. It will take away the thirst. One of my now favorite stories is I was out for a walk with uh, my friend Peter a few, uh, about a year ago, and he was pointing out the place in the back on the flats where he had encouraged his young children at the time, right, Pete, to take a good old drink from the stream. How old were your children at the time, Pete? Four and five. So really hardy, robust systems, you know. Only to discover uh, how far, how many yards up the stream? About a meter and a half was a dead what? Coyote. This is interactive preaching right here. We're going to carry this on all the way through the sermon. I'm just going to ask Peter questions. He's going to throw back the answers. And Jen was not there. Thank you, Jen. I wouldn't have mentioned that. So Pete was like, sure, this water looks clean. Gives him a good drink. And poor little Ellie was so, so, like, so sick. Was it kind of projectile type stuff? That's what Pete... Oh, pardon? Oh, the Dixies, yes. We won't go there. She, uh, she was horribly sick. And if Peter had just looked, I thought you were going to say like 20 yards, a meter and a half up the stream. <laughs> well done, the outdoorsman. Not all water is the same, is my point. Not all water is the same. What did Bethlehem's water represent to David? That's the question. It represents the protection of God. It represents the calling of God. It represents the favor of God to him. It represents the promise of God. This was the place where God anointed him. The Spirit of God rushed upon him from that day forward. The water in Bethlehem represented something that triggered some love and grace reminder in David's life. So when he is sighing for the water in Bethlehem, it's not because he's thirsty. He's sighing, where is God in all this? I'm sat in a cave, where's the promise of God? I'm sat in a cave, where is my throne? God, you said. And can I tell you, it's okay for us to get mad at God. It's okay for us to sit in front of God and go, God, why? This is David's moment. Where are you in all this, God? He's, he's almost just he's sighing it out. And we all have times in our life where we've got such anchored memories of things that were good and things that were significant. It might be a song comes on in the car and all these memories come flooding back. And they might be good memories. They might be songs you just cannot listen to because of the bad memories. I got one song that as soon as it starts, I can't help but sing it really, really loudly. And all these memories of when I was like 12, uh, 13, 14 years old come flooding back of school discos, which is, or school dances as you call them, um, which which was uh, uh, Bon Jovi living on a prayer. I mean, like, that song triggers memories thick and fast. And it might be a smell. It might be a house. It might be a road you walk past. It might be anything. You might be walking along a path in a different place in the world. You catch a smell of something, and all these memories and emotions come flooding back. 
Some of you have memories and emotions that come flooding back that trigger you and your anxiety. These things, these senses are incredibly powerful. And this is what David's response is to this. Oh, that I would have the water of Bethlehem. I miss my home. Lord, where are you? It's not a command. It's a sigh. It's a longing. It's just that that water is simply so sweet. That water is like water that cannot be found anywhere else on the planet. And I wonder if you're there right now. I wonder whether you feel like the water that you're sipping from, the experience that you have in your life right now, the memories that are being built up right now are not as sweet as the water you have tasted before. And if I look on a more global macro level, I look at the world and it feels like the water is not as sweet as my memories would say that we had before. The water is not sweet. There's a longing. There's a sigh. It feels like some days we're just sat in a cave. We've gone from a pandemic to a potential of world war. And I'm not a particularly pessimistic guy. I remember standing up here, full confession, you can laugh at me, I don't care, well, a little bit, and saying, oh, this COVID thing's just like the flu, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I remember saying that. Some of you probably remember me saying that. You've probably been itching to go, ah, told you. I'm not a particularly pessimistic guy with this sort of thing. I'm not standing here saying this will end in world war. Of course not. But I do feel the sigh. Then. One of the most powerful words in the Bible. But. So. Some translations say. So. The three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines. The three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines. It's fascinating to me that the Bible puts so little detail on that statement. I want to. That is a whole movie ready to be made right there. That's a gladiator, brave heart. That, that, I want to see that. When I get to heaven, I want to watch that. Can we play that back, please? Big screen. I want to see what happened. These three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines. Could you grab me a bottle of water, please? These three mighty men. These come from the top 30 men, as we read in the first part of the passage. And then those 30 come from... Thank you, Don. Those 30 come from up to 400 mighty men. These mighty men were a formidable force. They were battle-hardened. They were elite soldiers. You know those guys, no neck, tattoos. Just looking at them makes you go, you know what, you can, have, you can do whatever you want. You know, they probably drive an F-350 or... I don't know. What do you drive, Nick? Okay. <laughs> Kidding. Not a RAV. <laughs> or a minivan. <laughs> Sorry, mate. These three, let's get back on track. These three were the best of the best of the best. 433. These three men were Josheb, Eliza, and Shamar. Let me give you some of their resume. The mightiest of the mighty. Shemar single-handedly defended a field of lentils, because why not? So obviously a fierce vegetarian, vegan, very passionate. 
defended a field of lentils against 600 men, killed them all with an ox goad. That's a stick with a spike on the end of it. In fact, it looks a bit like a piece of bread to me, but I'm not eating bread right now, so I just see bread everywhere. Um, He defended this field with an ox goad, 600 of them. He knew what he was doing. He's one of them. Eleazar, he was so powerful. He was such a warrior that in the account in 2 Samuel 23 that he killed so many men that his hands stuck to his sword for the blood. Dried on. Joseph, he killed 800 men at one time by himself. This guy, these three, can you imagine? No wonder the scripture says one man can chase a thousand, but two can chase 10,000. The combined fierceness and passion that these three had, just give them a stick with a spike on the end of it, and we're at it. No problem. And what does it take? Instant command coming from the king then. They didn't think about it. They didn't sit around and discuss it. And it wasn't even a command. What it was was just the sigh of the king. I want you to remember that. The sigh of their king. They overheard the sigh of the heart of their king and that was enough. They didn't wait for a command. They didn't wait for strategy. They might have thought about their strategy, but David likely just said this, this, oh, at the part of the sentence, tells us that it was just a sigh. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate. We know just from sheer history and geography that what they went through to get to that well, just three of them, they would have had to break, uh, first of all, through the security system that the Philistines would have set up. Probably 20 soldiers, their best of their best. It was their early warning system that they would put outside of their camp. They would have broken through those, first of all. Then we know because of geography, they would have had to have fought uphill to get to Bethlehem. And if you know even a little bit about military strategy, fighting uphill puts you at a tremendous disadvantage. These three men now are fighting the army of the Philistines to get to the water that David hasn't even commanded he wants. He's just sighed over. Then, think about it, the Philistines would have been surrounding them. One of them would have been drawing the water out. The other two would have been defending the one. Then they get back out. Fighting uphill, breaking through the lines, getting the water, getting back to David. Then the three mighty men broke through, and we carry on. That was by the gates, and he brought it to David, but he would not drink it. <laughs> Say what? Uh, baby. Let me just explain to you what has just happened. Me and my two mates, look at them, have just fought through potentially thousands to get this water, and you're not drinking it. Not drinking it. They'd risk their lives. They stare death in the face. They hand the water to the king. The king looks at it. He pours it out on the water, on the ground. It pulls into a puddle and then disappears. Would they be angry? I'd be angry, if I'm honest. They weren't angry. They would have been as amazed and honored as David. The reason being is David poured it out to the Lord. 
He poured it out to the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. What David did is he turned it into an act of worship. And these three men would have looked on in absolute joy and admiration because their king, the sigh of their king, resulted in them risking their lives. And then the king pours it out as a sacrifice to the Lord. But more than anything else, why was it that David did this? What was it about this act that David made him, uh, that he was felt he should worship the Lord by pouring it out as a sacrifice? Something so simple. It's not in the narrative, but if you just place yourself in the place of where David is, you read his Psalms, you read his life, you know that in that moment he's been reminded of something that's far more precious than the Bethlehem's water. He's been reminded that God is on his side. I know God is with me. I know that God is with me. That was the most precious gift that these men could have given David. The reminder that God is in control that the reminder that if these three men could do that, how much more can God do? And this echoes all the way through the Bible. You can find scripture after scripture after scripture. Be courageous. Fear not. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Friends, we are not on our back heel as Christians. We are on our front foot. We are so well equipped to pray, to see action, to do, to do all those things that need to be done when it comes to Ukraine and any other war or pandemic in this world. We are on our front foot because we have been called by a mighty God who is able to do the inexplicable and the unexpected and powerful through the mighty, through the weak, Whatever it might be, God is able to do so much more. I love the thought of Philistines reporting back to their hierarchy. How many people attacked you? Three. Pardon? Three. But they were really big. You know, really big, no neck, tattoos, you know the type of guys. They were really big. I read a few uh, months ago, I'm quite fascinated with the Vikings because likely uh, with my, my heritage, there is almost certainly some Viking, the Saxons and everything else, England, that definitely, uh, especially where my family is from in England. And uh, I found much to my disgust that, you know that classic image that Vikings coming over the brow of the hill attacking England and they're usually like six foot three, blonde, really powerful, masculine looking guys with horns on their helmets, you know, and all that kind of imagery. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you look at me like I'm an idiot, but you know what I'm talking about. You've, you've seen the pictures. I was so disappointed to find out that the horns were actually likely to be pieces of leather that they tie under their chin and then just tie it at the top. Secondly, the height of people at that time, they were likely to be about five foot three, dumpy, overweight, in need of keto, sweaty looking group of marauders coming over. They were violent, I'll give you that, but nothing like, oh, I want to look like that. Not at all. We exaggerate. Right? We exaggerate because what's actually likely is the scribes at the time, who were the clergy at the time, didn't want to write down that they actually were five foot three, dumpy looking fellas. They wrote down they were like six foot nine, really powerful looking guys, and that's why we lost because you saved face. I just kind of, just as an aside, I'd love to have overheard that conversation with the Philistines in their hierarchy later. But what it tells me is this three men, 
Three people, that's all God needed at that moment to bring encouragement to the king. Three men, three people, is all that it needed at that moment to bring change into the camp in the midst of what is a chaotic and scary world. It takes three of you, one of you, one of me, three of us, a hundred and however many there are in this room, to bring change to a situation to bring encouragement, to bring reminder to people that God is in control. He is capable of far more that if we dedicate ourselves, just like these three mighty men, dedicate themselves to the side of their king, then we can actually bring encouragement in a way that our society desperately needs. Your neighbors need, my neighbors need, our community needs. That's the power that we have in our mouths and in our actions in the way that we live our lives. This one act turned David's attention. This is from the message. This is a, a psalm. I'm not reading it down. I think it's Psalm 142. This was actually written when he was in the cave. I cry out loudly to God. Loudly I plead with God for mercy. I spill out all my complaints before him. I spell out my troubles in detail. As I sink in despair, my spirit ebbs away. You know how I'm feeling. Know the danger I'm in. The trap's hidden in my path. Look right. Look left. There's not a soul who cares what happens. I'm up against it with no exit, bereft or left alone. I cry out. God, call out. You're my last chance, my only hope for life. Oh, listen. Please listen. I've never been this low. Rescue me from those who are hunting me down. I'm no match for them. Get me out of this dungeon so I can thank you in public. Your people will form a circle around me and you'll bring me showers of blessing. Just a small group of people with a vision and a prayer can change people's attention from despair to God. Let me introduce you to a small group of people. Aren't they great? Just want to point out a couple of things. Really feel sorry for this fella. He made the wrong choice of standing next to this guy, didn't he? That group, notice how many children there are. One little guy. Could be little Isabel on the side there. That group was the group of people that started Willow Park Church 75 years ago. Isn't that cool? Next year, we celebrate our 75th anniversary. There they are. I looked at that photo, and I thought, there is a group of people who heard the sigh of their king. There is a group of people who are willing to risk finances, risk prayers, risk action, the result of being over the last 75 years, I don't even know where to begin to tell you the number of people who have come to know Jesus through this church. Thousands and thousands of people. I can't even begin to tell you the number of young people, older people, families, people who've been married, people who've done Alpha, people who have gone on mission, the effect, the finances, the investments, all started with a group of people who heard the sigh of their king. They committed themselves to pray. So totally devoted to one another, to the mission and to the vision. Can I tell you that if there's any part, and I say this very lovingly, but I feel like I have some credibility to do so. If there's any part of you that is thinking, I'm going to take a step back over the next few months because mm, don't feel like going to 33. Can I encourage you, now is the time that we band together. 
Now is the time as we go towards massive change. We do not take a step back. We look at the example of those that have gone before and we take a step forward. That we truly believe that we're going to enter into a beautiful new chapter that is going to be life-changing for thousands more to come. Now is not the time that we look to the gate of Bethlehem and go, hmm, looks a bit far. Just being honest. Now is the time we go, what can we do? What can we pray for? How can we stand together? Not just for this church and this neighborhood and a community that desperately needs to know the love of Jesus, but for our world. What can we stand together? What can we do? What can we pray? And I say that with the deepest respect and love for you all because you continually blow me away and bless me. But now is not the time to step back. I don't think these people step back. <laughs> this guy makes me laugh as well. I, I'm guessing he might have been the first pastor, a bit distracted. <laughs> David's sigh was their command. I'm going to speed this up. You see, David all the way through the Bible is this amazing picture of Jesus. And these men heard the sigh of Jesus and they instantly responded. Then, immediately. Let me show you a cartoon I saw this week. Little guy, flip, flip, flip. I don't do this very often, so I feel this a bit awkward. But anyway. The stranger who resides with you in your land shall be to you as one of your citizens. You shall love him as yourself. What do you think that means? Not a clue. Flip, flip, flip. Whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to poverty will be cursed. Does that make any sense to you? Uh Uh-uh. Flip, flip, flip. Then I saw a monster come out of the sea. It had been ten horns and seven heads. Each of the ten horns wore a crowd. It's the end times. It's all so clear. I've actually heard this kind of rhetoric around what's happening right now. I think we've been in the end times for a long time, okay? And I'm not going to tell you yay, nay, whatever, because Jesus knows, God knows, that's good enough for me. The Bible says be ready. So let's just park that. But what I am saying is now is the time for action. Let's not wait until we figure out what God wants us to do. Let's actually ask, what is Jesus' daily sigh for us? Let me just give you five ways over the next few weeks that you can actually not only help this church, but also help your community, your neighbors, your, your kids, and the world. Number one, God is looking. His sigh for you is the intimacy and communion to be with you. Put time aside. We talk about this all the time. Put time aside to spend time with the king. Because listen... You know those men knew David so well that they could pick up on his sigh? They were so attentive, they heard it. We need to be so attentive that we hear his sigh. We hear his command. Spend time in prayer and scripture reading and meditation because in that it changes you. It reveals you to you. There's transformation in that. And as you spend time with him, then you will hear the the sighs even clearer. And that is one of the most effective ways that we can actually see change in our world is by praying for it. Serving one another, serving each other in the community and sharing your story Share your story of Jesus. Share your story of the church. Share your story of what's going on. Service and sharing. Help people avoid the road to hell. You have that ability to change people's attention. We've seen that with the mighty man and David. Love and community. Look for ways that we can stick together. 
Get there March 30th, uh, 13th, next week, whatever it might look like, and look for one another, look for ways to do community. We're working hard on lots of different ways that we can do things outside of Sunday, but get involved, step forward, and then finally, generously and simply live your life. Do the anti-kingdom of the world thing and do the Jesus kingdom thing, which is be generous, give generously of your time, of your money, of your attention, of your love, and then look to ways that you can simplify your life so you can give more time and attention and finances and love to those things that are desperately needed. Just so you know, as an aside, we are looking as ways as a church that we can support uh, what's happening in Ukraine financially, likely through supporting missionaries over there and church planters uh, through Multiply. So more information on that in the next little while. Let me finish off. And thank you for listening so long. The truth of it is this list is just part of the sigh of the king for us and our time right now. And in a time where it feels overwhelming with everything that's going on, the most audacious thing that we can do is commit to a life that that reflects that. The most audacious and powerful thing we can do is to love well, share our story, be intimate with our king, listen to his sigh, scripture reading, get involved, give financially, give generously. These are all powerful ways that we take the love of Jesus into our kingdom. That honestly, the best answer our kingdom has is to look after your self-care and that my Italian trip's been disrupted. I know your heart, just like mine, longs for a sweeter water, a different kind of water. And as we step into a new chapter as a church, that is what I am pleading and encouraging you to focus on, that Jesus is the provider of the sweetest water of life you will ever find. That regardless of the circumstances, because please note, the circumstances didn't change for David to start feeling better. The circumstances did not change for David to see that God was in control. The circumstances did not change in a long time. But he was reminded, confident of God's control, confident that the enemy will eventually be beaten, confident that the man called Jesus, who not only faced death like these three mighty men, but actually went through death, taking my sin, my shame, and it dying with me so that I could have newness of life and relationship with him so I could experience this different kind of water so that I could be confident that he is my hope, not what goes on anywhere else in the world. Jesus is my hope. So I want to pray. I want to pray blessing on you. I want to pray for this next chapter. I want to pray for the joy of the Lord to fill your heart in the midst of what is a scary time knowing that if we are filled by him today, that we go like mighty men and women and break through any line that the enemy might put up against us. So let's pray. Let's stand together. I'm going to hand over to Sarah. Just uh, by information, Phil and I will be uh, sharing the pulpit. So week by week, we'll be taking it in turns. Uh, Next week, Phil is preaching, and then I go to Africa a week on Friday. So I'm going to be uh, away for a couple of Sundays. And um, please pray for us as we do that. Phil and I are going over to look at a a work over there with the view of seeing how we as a church can start supporting it and sending teams. And uh, So it's in Tanzania. So please pray for that. And uh, we've got a lot to do over the next couple of weeks before we get there. 
but I'm excited about what the Lord's going to do, and that's what I want to pray into right now. So give me a big hearty amen at the end of the prayer, and then Sarah will uh, lead us in some worship. Father, we, uh, it's been a lot, Lord, a lot to soak in, a lot to think about. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we have worked through this passage, that Lord, you would remind us that you are our hero, you are our champion, that Lord, you are our king. And Lord, I pray that we'd be as a church now, today, as over the next few months and then into the future, we'll be a church that listens for the sigh of the king that, Lord, we would be quick to respond, quick to obey, quick to live generously and simply. And that, Lord, quick to encourage one another. That, Lord, you would fill us so full now with your spirit that, God, we'd leave this place feeling like we've been in the presence of God, thankful, overjoyed, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us and what you continue to do. And, Lord, as our last Sunday in this building, as it looks right now, we pray a blessing on this place. We pray, Lord, for the families and the children that are going to come into this building. Lord, I pray that your essence, your presence will remain, that this place, Lord, will be blessed because we're going to be meeting here every week. Lord, thank you for the gift of this building. And, Lord, thank you for the future that you are giving us in your hands. So, Lord, we pray blessing now on this place, and I pray blessing on these good people. Thank you so much for every one of them, and those online as well, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.